The only reason that you're conscious right now is because I don't want to carry you. Kiefer Sutherland. He's kind of crazy. She's a little insane. Keeping energy really messes with his brain. One is the forest. The other's husband is dead. That's why it's so messed up in the head. It's a silver linings playcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Silver Linings Playcast. I'm your host, Jamie Ward, and as far as I know, this is the only podcast solely devoted to talking about Silver Linings Playbook, the movie, and the Silver Linings Playbook, the book. And I think that was the first time I got the intro right uh, in a very long time. We have a super special episode today for you. This is our 100th episode. That's right, we've been around for 100 episodes. And this is actually part 24 of our special 100-parter 100th episode. Part 24, if you listened to last week's half an episode, you probably heard me talking about the fact that uh, I, I had lost count, and I think that I had said that it was like the 22nd, and in my head I was counting that it was actually supposed to be the 24th because I had bet the 23rd. Anyway, I've rectified the situation. This is very much the 24th part of our special 100-parter 100th episode uh, of, the, of the podcast, right? And so it is uh, quite an accomplishment to get to 100 episodes, and this is 24 weeks since we started our 100th episode. So congratulations uh, to me for keeping this going. Uh, perseverance is a huge thing. I want to, I want to, it's, it's kind of a weird day. I had a whole plan (laughs) of what, uh, we were going to talk about today. And I had, um, I was supposed to go to therapy this morning and I got a call at nine o'clock that, uh, my appointment had been canceled for an emergency on their end. So I didn't get to go. And it's a shame because I was I was all excited and ready to talk about uh, Silver Linings Playbook. It was the first time I have not brought Silver Linings Playbook up in therapy, and I think I was saving it because I wanted to I wanted to set a good tone. I'm probably on my like I'm on my second visit to the therapist, probably like the ninth part of my infinite porter uh, visits. That's just a little joke. That's probably the first joke in the history of our our podcast, and it wasn't that funny. But I had intended to totally broach the subject of talking about how this is my favorite movie, and I wanted to ask some questions of a professional therapist, a professional counselor, uh, and and know if if, uh, they had seen this movie, what their feelings were about it. I've talked to other counselors about this film, and there's articles about how this film... Now, there's, there's a split. This is an interesting thing. When this movie first came out, it was really lauded by uh, sort of think piece journalists about how it had a very fair, honest, and realistic portrayal of mental illness and therapy. And they were saying it's sort of a romance to mental health, the story. As time goes on, we know that people always need to tear things down, that you sort of, you get more views from having incendiary views, and that's views in two different ways. You get more 
uh, visual views, clicks on your article for having incendiary uh, perspectives on things, right? And so uh, people always sort of react to the first round of any type of, of thoughts put out into the world. A movie comes out and people will have their ideas about what it's about. They'll have their ideas, their, their analysis of the film. And then once that topic has sort of been uh, that, you know, exhausted and people can't really milk that subject anymore, then you will start to see that's where these counterpoints start becoming the prevailing perspective about how, how these movies are, right? So if you look at the articles that start coming out uh, dated later than the earlier articles about Silver Linings Playbook, the movie, you will see them start to become a little harsher about them sugarcoating the story, maybe, about how they, they weren't as in-depth or honest as uh, some people feel, feel that the story really should have been. And that's fine. Everybody's entitled to a different opinion on, on their things uh, and stuff. And there's actually sort of some theories I have about this kind of thing. Uh, one of the interesting conversations I had with Katie last night, I was, I was asking her if she knows why journalism has gotten really bad. Now, I'm not criticizing journalism. I think it's a very important field, and we both highly respect the concept of journalism and the freedom of the press and people's right to information and just the fact that it affects things in a major way. And I was explaining that I have a theory. It's not really a theory so much as just an observation of one of the reasons why journalism has gotten bad. And it's a blanket statement. It's not really meant to, to mean that there aren't great journalists out there and there's not great uh, journalism going on. But it's, part of the problem is that we don't want to pay for it. And what happens when you don't want to pay for it is they put the best journalism behind a paywall. And you start going to the free sources... Uh, that, um, you know, and that's what we do. We're, we're in a, a whole just sort of culture and society that likes to look up stuff for free on the... So I was saying that, um, you know, and, and of course, like, we're all poor and can't afford a million dollars. We can't, we can't afford... Uh, a whole subscription to the New York Times every time I want to read one article about why somebody did something stupid. Uh, but also, we just have this problem that, uh, you know, journalists need to get paid. They are, that is their job, that's their livelihood, and they don't, they, this is the thing with every field. When you are distracted with having to figure out how you're going to monetize what you're doing to make ends meet. And, and I mean that in the most respectful way to every field. Like if, if you were um, working a uh, drive-through, but you, if, if you were a commission salesperson or you had to renegotiate your salary weekly in order to keep your job, 
that would affect your ability to actually focus on the task. And that's one of the problems with so many jobs in the world that we put this sort of unspoken responsibility on people that they have to be their own managers. They have to negotiate their salaries and benefits. They ha and, and these are things that in some fields, there is a whole separate career and position for people to help individuals do that so that they can focus on the work at hand. How many jobs have all of us had in which a, a, a majority of the hours spent doing work for that job were not on the task or tasks associated with what you thought that job should be. They're secondary and tertiary tasks, such as, you know, like when you have to get your own uniforms, when you have to get your own outfits for things, if that's not a uh, job benefit, that becomes a whole separate mini job if you have to create stuff offline. Now, now there are some jobs where you take work home, too, but I'm talking about like anybody that was in the military will know. You sign up for uh, an MOS, military occupational spe occupation specialty, and you will spend most of your time not doing that. It, is, it was a very uh, rare treat when you felt like you actually got to do the thing that you signed up to do. Now, there's an understandable level to this in all fields. There's a lot of implied tasks that go along with all things to keep keep uh, businesses functioning and stuff. And also, uh, there are some some of these tasks are too small that they don't require a whole career position, right? Like you you don't hire a manager for most of your jobs if if you're just gonna you know go into a field, work for a corporation. Uh, because why they would manage you that one time while you're going in and then maybe you would hire them every year, a couple years when you go to renegotiate your salary. But that would be far too small of a time. Actually, you know, I'm saying that maybe that would be a great thing. Maybe there should be a position of uh, job manager, not managers at the job, right? But I'm talking a manager, like a talent manager who goes in for employees. And anyway, I'm getting distracted about things that aren't. I was talking about uh, journalism. So you have all these people that are trying, and, and you need to think of journalists like artists. I, I am very aware of this because when I uh, went to, to film school, my roommate was in journalism school. So I sort of saw uh, a parallel in what he was doing to what I was doing. As a filmmaker, I sort of want to make a breakout film that gets me noticed. Um, I could go work on a production for another big company, which is like the same as going to a corporation or going to a big news organization, working in a mailroom or something. Uh, you know, you can go be a PA, which is sort of just like an hourly wage thing where you do a little bit of everything. And you learn the craft there. Right, but what is the thing? You know, there's there's more there's more of these PAs and interns than there are directors. So how do you how do you move up in your field when you're ready, sort of to take on more responsibility and get that next level task, especially when you're competing with all these other people that are doing the exact same thing you are, and they all want the same position. This is the same thing. Like journalists being, being um, I forget the terms for all of them, but you know, the people that write, uh, it, well, you have the freelance 
ones that just submit articles and hope to get them published or the pictures. And then you have the people that are hired that are full-time the staff uh, reporters that are there to do uh, regular on a regular basis, um, you know, and then you have the uh, higher ranking editors that get to make decisions about what kind of things will go into there, right? So, so you have to differentiate yourself from your, your coworkers by putting out something great. Uh, and by great in film, it's, it's just something that sort of captivates a lot of audience members. It feels gross to talk about journalism in this way, but honestly, the journalism, all the, all these fields, like all these art fields, when you sort of, uh, have to empiricalize them and rank them, like so that you can say who deserves a, a promotion out of multiple people doing the same things, you sort of assign a, a tangible value to these things. And one of the metrics that's often used is how many people view a film, box office take. Uh, in journalism, I, I imagine, especially with how much online it's going, it's like how many clicks with everything online. How many people click on your your stuff, your links, your articles, and how long they spend on those uh, is a huge metric on on how people gauge the success of of how effective the content they put on the internet is, right? And so you have articles, really great ones, written by wonderfully smart and insightful, uh, you know, journalist artists. Uh, if it is not something that captures the attention over something flashy, it will not get the views and it will be buried. That's why there is an art to making headlines catchy. And the, now we reach why clickbait happened. It was a confluence of the internet and the media um, moving from, you know, I mean... There, there always was this. You had the, uh, the tabloids that are at the grocery store that I remember as a kid, and that was the original clickbait. They have these headlines that are just absolutely eye-catching. They're literally eye-catching. They, they make them in reds and yellows so that they look like fire, so they draw your eyes to them, and they just say the most outlandish things in the hope that, that, that you'll be curious. I don't... Uh, I don't personally know anybody that's ever read those regularly. We had them in our school for some reason when I was little, and I always thought that like that was weird. Maybe it was just my teachers or something. Um, and I said, so, and I have to be honest, like I don't actually think I've sat down and read like a National Enquirer or a Star, but I. So this, so this is not fair. I'm, I'm clickbaiting you on my podcast right now because I don't know what I'm about to, to say uh, is fact or not. But I'm guessing that those headlines that are trying to make you really interested in what's inside are not followed up with super, um, super in-depth, really information-laden articles. I think one of uh, the best examples of a very borderline, there's, um, there's a, a UK news source that I'm not remembering off of the top of my head, but it's, it's something like the, the 
UK Star, or the UK Telegraph. It's one that always shows up, and it's, it's it is so borderline. Like sometimes the headline is accurate, but then the articles are always really just rehashing the headline in so many ways. But by the time I and and they get me every single time. But by the time you start reading the article, like you've already given them the click, you have already told their algorithm that whoever wrote that uh, did well enough to attract one more reader, right? And this and this is how they justify uh, selling ad space then to the internet ads. And then they make money from the advertisement companies for how many people click on their ads because the links because then, then the ads are displayed to that many people. And that's why... Most of these news sources are free initially where like I can see what the article is and and read them but like they're not they're not going to be as great as like news sources when you paid if you have a subscription to something and you're getting uh and and when I say great too even th this is the difficult thing about ranking the effectiveness of of journalism uh it's Totally a false thing to say a better paid journalist is better and a lesser paid journalist is not good. There's a whole different reasons why they may, they may be at different points in their careers. They may be paid on different scales. The companies they work for may be paid differently. But these are these are metrics that we have to generally use because there's too many factors and we just don't have the time to um, you know treat each case individually. Again, here this is like one of those. Secondary tasks. If if you want to read the news, you don't want to make a whole miniature job for yourself finding a source of news. How many of us just sort of Google or we go to the the main thing? I will often. I mean, what what my main thing is, and I don't I don't keep up with the news uh, nearly well enough by well enough at all. But uh, every couple of days, like once a week, I try to I will type in uh, CNN dot com. Uh, just to see what the headlines are. I don't even read their articles. I'm just looking for, is there something of interest that I need to read further? Um, and then if if there is, like if a war breaks out and I didn't even know there was a war, I will then generally try to uh, look for different sources like uh, uh, AP articles or um, uh, Washington uh, like and but this is the thing. I'm not trying to uh, say that there that these are different sources. The the so the main reason I go to certain sources though, um, like uh, AP or uh, like uh, NPR or stuff, um, is it, and it acts. It has to do exactly with this money thing, right? They are are funded in different ways. So they might not have the huge, huge budgets of the news organizations that are able to sort of be the sexy young stars and voices in global events, but they are consistent. They are funded through different ways, um, which, uh, and, and also when people take, so people take jobs at those and they sort of feel like they're doing a little bit of a service because they, they know too, they're, pro they're not going to be rich and and famous uh, simply from spending their time there. I think that's so. Here's like an example of sort of like if you become a stand-up comic and you start working the road. Um, if you do your job fine, in about ten years, with within ten years, as long as you're not 
genuinely terrible, you should be able to make a decent living. There's a certain level of it where it's just work. You show up to the bars that the hooker sends you, you do your performance, and they pay you the allotted amount. And it once once you sort of have spent enough time, and I'm throwing 10 years out there because that's within the time frame that I was getting to that point, uh, you can make a, a living. You can support yourself. You can probably stop doing other things if that's the way you want to live. Now, if you do something like you decide to go to work for a cruise line or you work for one of the corporate comedy uh, bookers, you can probably live a more... look Like, I know, know some cruise ship comedians that actually live pretty nicely. They afford to fly to the uh, ports in which they ship out of or not and stuff. Something that, like, I would never do as a road comic driving. I spent a month doing these cruise and stuff. And yet, it's a totally different world, too. Nobody's ever going to get famous off of a cruise. Like, nobody ever uh, gets discovered because there is no industry, but it's also very secure because you're working for the cruise line. You're not this freelancing thing. So this is a great example of where I think, uh, you can look at like working for the, uh, um, national public radio. It's funny that I'm calling it radio. I mean, it is, y'all already know. Uh, but, but saying like, if you want to be a journalist for them, uh, you know, which is, uh, subsidized by federal grants and, um, uh, donations and stuff. Uh, so you have these people that are sort of, they're more in it for the art of journalism. Usually there are definitely people that probably get into that and they're just like, I'm going to use this as a stepping stone in my career or it looks good for me. But like you have that in every field, right? I'm just talking broad strokes about some of the things we talked about, about the industry. And it's, it's a really interesting thing to just think about, right? Uh, you, could go work at the New York Times, and that is a place where you're sort of more likely to become uh, a star journalist. Now, journalism is an interesting thing because just like all these other entertainment things like singing, like acting, like comedy, there is an element too where you hear stories about like some people do get picked from everywhere. And is that luck? Is it timing? Is it talent shining through? I think it, it differs case by case. There's no uh, hard and fast rule about how that happens. But if you work for a place like the New York Times, you know, it's sort of seen as more prestigious. You have these, these sort of celebrity news personalities, too, that have their hour uh, uh, talk shows, right? Um, you have uh, the... Uh, I forget which, the, the Cuomo brother, um, uh, Rachel Maddow, uh, uh, what was that dude's name? Uh, Hannity, right? Okay, so you have these personalities too that they've, they've established themselves in journalism to a point where they sort of become Anderson this hour. Anderson, that, that's a really good example. Like because I wouldn't have like Steve felt gross Hannah. saying him. He seems like a <laughs> decent guy, right? Okay, so those, yeah. Um, Let's say, I, I want to say, Anderson, so Anderson Cooper is like a good uh, example, I think, of a person who like uh, seems like not a terrible person Barbara and has Walters. sort of like a, yes. Katie Couric. So these people, these are celebrities, and that's, why could I not pull Oprah? any single name? No, I, was the, <laughs> I was like absolutely blanking out on 
every person that's how disconnected I am right um, so you have them but I also I also like to I always tell people too I'm like the the 24 hour news cycle is also a thing that changed all of this too you used to have the news come on uh, I guess there was like a morning news show and a night news show and then in the 80s you have the actual start of news channels that are 24-hour channels which have the that report constantly and that has really one changed the market where people are now expecting to have later and later uh, breaking news given to them but you also have the demands of these these media companies to basically regurgitate the same information until something else comes out about it um, if you if you watch any of like the real time disaster tragedies that ever go on on these news, they play the same short clips over and over, and they just have to be creative with who they bring in to give their commentary on it. Right? You ever watch uh, any of the the miners stuck in mines or wells or something? I'm trying to take like the a, a nicer example, so I'm not being exploitative of like a natural disaster or, or yeah something like you know bear stuck in tree that's the kind of thing that goes on i want to see carson daly like, on the today show talking yeah. about a bear stuck in a tree <laughs> Absol- Absol- like animal great. animal videos are, are great that's like okay like the zoo videos right where they're like a giraffe waiting to be born and they'll put the 24-hour camera yeah. like that um you know, but so, oh, okay, a great example. The Cougar loose what was the the town. James Webb uh, telescope. A telescope thing when we were waiting for the pictures. We even went to the NASA thing, and they started their coverage hours before the release of that, and they just keep bringing in all these different experts to. Um, actually, that there was brand there was new pictures put out recently. Maybe today, I don't. A lot of people were sharing them. Have you seen them? They're gorgeous. Uh, They're. Uh, it looks like a hand. It looks like a golden hand. Um, I don't know if it's uh, current or something, but but uh, but yeah. But anyway, people are trying to like so journalists are trying to differentiate themselves so that and and um, pillars of creation were really accessible. Yeah. For see, isn't isn't that amazing? I mean, I know all of them have been amazing, but I was just like, that's. Sure. Incredible. I, a, I had a print of that. Not a print. I'm kidding. Like one of the street art people that do the spray paint. No, oh yeah. <laughs> it, it it looks like um, I, I see many things, but it looks like one of the Voltron lions to me. Uh, that's the head, and then that's the robot paw and the arm and the shoulder, and it's like jumping out of the volcano. I see a cat. Uh huh. And I then see the... this is like a dinosaur. These are like dinosaurs flying forward, or like uh, Falcor. I see that too. <laughs> and then this one is obviously chicken wing. Okay. The chicken. <laughs> what flavor is that? The chicken wings of the is universe. Yeah. It's like one of those like those uh-huh. portraits where like they have like the superimposed where they have the portrait of the cat, but the cat is also up in the corner. Yeah. <laughs> a silhouette portrait. I always like that. I um so yeah, we're looking at the uh, the late breaking pictures of these incredible yeah, that's t- the one that we that's... had before. Compared to what we have now. That's from the hovel and that's from James Webb. 
That's just, I like them both. They're, I don't. Stars. I know. Wow. Wow. Owen Wilson, sorry. They look like uh, jellyfish, too, kind of, or something. You know what they look like. (laughs) Chicken nuggets. I told you. Do you want me to make you some chicken nuggets? I wasn't thinking about it, but I don't never not want you to make the chicken nuggets. <laughs> I'm going to go make the chicken sandwich. Um, yeah, but, uh, yeah, so we were watching. Hmm. Can I pause it? I can pause it. I can pause it. We're pausing for a second. So this is like an aberration. I'm, I don't consider this journalism or art, and, and, and that's why I give it away for free. Uh, and this is the perfect example of something. Uh, because the quality is just not here, right? Like, what is the longest movie franchise that you know of? Maybe um, the... Uh, actually, let's look it up. That's not a thing that we have to wonder about. That's probably empirical information that is available on the internet. Longest film <coughs> franchise. We have, okay, here is a Collider article, about eight of the longest. I've, I'm a dummy. I missed the answer, and it's one of my favorites. Well, okay, you got the Star Wars, which has 12 films. This list is clearly a little old because it was from 1977 to 2019. It had 12 films. I, I think there's more. Maybe, maybe I just don't know, though. I could be wrong about that. Uh, the Gamara films, uh, Japanese monster movies, has 12 films from 1965 to 2006. The Mummy, 19 films, 1932 to 2017. What? So I guess that's counting every Mummy movie. If it's Oh, because based off of the universal monster, The Mummy. This is the one that I thought was going to win, at, even though I couldn't think of off the top of my head, but when I saw the list, uh, James Bond has 27 films. It did as of 2021. Uh, from 1962 to 2021, there was 27 James Bond films. Oh, Zatochi. Looks like a samurai uh, film series. From 1962 to 2010, there was 28 films. Marvel Cinematic Universe has 29 films from 2008 to 2022, even though I don't think that counts, because, like, they started counting funny, like, just adding things where they were like, oh, this movie is also, it's not a continuing storyline. Godzilla, 40 films, 1954 to 2021. That was, you know what? Okay, so it's Japanese that really love making the same... Otoko wa Tasuri Yo. It's Tough Being a Man. <laughs> Has 50 films <laughs> from 1969 to 2019. Uh, and the picture that. Okay, I don't want to get myself in trouble, but the picture looks ridiculous. Uh, 50 movies. Let's, let's read the. The Otoko wa Tasuri Yo. 
or It's Tough Being a Man series stands as the rare film series that reaches the milestone of 50 movies, and impressively did it so over 50 years, too, with all but the final film featuring Kiyoshi Atsumi as the lead character Toro-san, a lovable yet flawed bachelor who could never properly settle down with a romantic partner no matter how hard he tried. He sadly passed away in the late 1990s, leaving the series without a proper conclusion. But for the 50th anniversary of the film, a final 50th film was made in 2019, and it's one of the best Japanese films in recent memory. Serving as a tribute for both Atsume and his character, it celebrates his monumental, funny, sad, and consistently entertaining film. Okay, so I actually, I want to say, not only do I feel like this is one of the only ones on the list, too, that is interesting, because it's actually played by the same character actor is played by the same character for 49 of the films which i think that is actually sort of a critical factor in if if you're saying cuz like these these mummy films if you look at this they they don't even resemble like saying hmm i think that's really hard to say that that is a series of films i don't think any like I think there's like four of them or something in the modern universal era era that most people my age would think, oh, they've made the mummy. Uh, and then they they rebooted the franchise within a couple of films in sort of this modern era where, where everything is a franchise. But um, and I guess they've made some early ones. Well, let's just read about this one. The mummy series might not have been the most, not have the most film entries that, Still a respectable 19, but it can count itself among the longest-running franchise with 85 years between the first Mummy film and the most recent one. It's unlikely that anyone who saw The Mummy in theaters in 1932 was also able to see the 2017 The Mummy in theaters. Maybe it's appropriate that this series about an ancient, undead, potentially immortal mummy will outlive us all. Still, 2017's notorious The Mummy film, starring the usually reliable Tom Cruise, has not only impacted the potential for more Mummy movies but the potential for more modern universal monster movies as the film was supposed to kick off a brand new cinematic universe had it been a success. Now, I'm actually very disappointed about this. I learned about this recently, and this was a fantastic idea to me. Apparently, Universal owns the rights to some of these classic uh, monsters as far as their um, film adaptation rights go, and so they were going to make, um, all these original, uh, these, these films that each featured their original, let's see who the Universal Monsters are, Universal Monsters, the Universal Monster Series, um, Dracula, The Invisible Man, The Phantom of the Opera, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. It's, uh, Dracula, Dracula Spanish, Frankenstein, um, The Mummy, Invisible Man, The Black Cat, The Bride of Frankenstein, Werewolf, and so, so there's these things like Dracula, I guess, okay, so I guess I kind of understand that, um, Universal owns Dracula, but they don't own the concept of vampires, but Dracula is a specific vampire, much like Frankenstein is a specific monster, I guess I just, the thing that, that is um, deceptive about it is that, I guess, the mummy is a specific 
monster. As opposed to the concept of reanimated mummies, which uh, are... Which, I don't know, maybe. Does Universal own the whole concept of wrapping up your dead, preserving them, and then reanimating them? I don't know. I wouldn't actually put it past a film company to copyright that whole concept that was once an actual historic thing from another country. But anyway, um, so yeah, that is uh, how that worked out. But they were, they were um, going to sort of create a new uh, extended cinematic universe where you had these different characters featured in their own horror monster movies, sort of like reboots of the original old ones, and then they were going to start combining them. And I thought that would have been pretty cool. I actually would have been far more interested than that. I'll say, I did I did get swept up in the Marvel madness for a number of years, because uh, they were exciting. They came out right at the perfect time. Um, when uh, that's the kind of... Thing I was int- actually I think that was sort of my reintroduction to film. I think I had come back from deployment and I was not. Um, that might have been the first movie that I started going to theaters again. So it was sort of exciting for that reason. Actually, no, you know what? I'll say though, um, uh, there is probably another reason it's come to light very uh, very recently. Um, and that is the, uh, 2012 film, uh, the, let's see, am I right, the 2012, yeah, uh, the, the original Avengers movie was a Joss Whedon film, that was probably my introduction to him, and, and I think that was the thing that got everybody excited, that you had somebody that sort of knew how to do a... Science fiction fantasy thing with just the right amount of humor and heart. I want to cite a conversation I had yesterday that was a real surprise to me. But it was really great. I enjoyed it. It was you ever, you ever have somebody that's calling you and asking for advice or help, and when you start talking to them, you start realizing you're figuring something out really great as well. Uh, yesterday, a friend that I've known through comedy for a number of years called me, and, uh, you know, we'll get, skip over the specifics of it, because this first part of it started kind of sad, but it was basically getting to the point of, like, you know, I'm fine, we're talking about, um, but we got to sort of the realization that, uh, headliner, no, no, so featured comics make audiences laugh. Headlining comics can make audiences cry. What makes, uh, a headliner over a feature. And I'm not talking about, like, earlier in this episode where I was talking about uh, comics that can make a living. Uh, And I'll say I was in this camp for a while. Um, You know, just because you're a headlining road comic, that you you know, that just means you really, you do the twice as much as the feature. Maybe two and a half to three times more, right? You do an hour. That's what we call it. Whether it's 45 minutes, it's usually 45 minutes, but we call it an hour set. It's a headlining set. You go last. Your name's on the poster. Your name's on the marquee. 
you're the headliner, that's who they come to see. But when you're doing those road gigs, like, they're not coming to see you, they're just coming to generic insert comedy, comedian comedy show. But you have these actual headlining comic characters, personalities, figures, right? Um, when uh, you... And, and I'm not using the best example because we're about to go into something that is so borderlines a whole different product or genre, but he definitely does do clubs occasionally and and some no no let me skip back let me let me go uh we had the very special opportunity to get to go see maria bamford at our local comedy venue last week the person i was about to cite i was about to talk about mike birbiglia but um he's sort of his own very unique uh brand right but uh Maria Bamford very similar I'm going to say same kind of comedy not not tonally she is much darker and talks about different subjects but it is a very theatrical performance it is a very story thing even though it's not as start to finish as Mike is like one story but he's also a very rare breed that does that but but there's a lot more sort of truthful vignette uh, that is put out in Maria's show. There's, there's a lot of weight behind the things she says. There is a lot of just very real, personal, and vulnerable stories and perspectives. And you learn a lot about who she is. And you learn a lot about how she thinks and about how things have affected her and this is a totally different kind of experience than when I have opened up for lots of people that just go from three minute bit to five minute bit to five minute bit and that is not to take away from these these headliners that I've opened from that have done that uh, do you know do something that I've never really achieved in my career, I was working on it, and I, I hit that point where I was doing hours occasionally. In fact, one of the last big comedy runs I did, a uh, conversation with the very same person that I'm talking about now, who booked me to do uh, a week run of, of headlining. And, you know, you, you get to tell a little story that you just don't have the room to tell in 20 or 30 minutes. But the material that goes over is totally is totally different in depending on the time span in which it's delivered as well. Because I remember so I'm gonna talk about the first time I was ever vulnerable on stage. I used to have a bit I did uh, early on and it was a it was a sort of trajectory changing revelation in my comedy. I started off doing one-liners. I wanted very much to be um, like Mitch Hedberg, like Emo Phillips, who also got to see recently. So this has been a very exciting comedy month. <laughs> I got to see two people that I've always wanted to see. Um, uh, and, and, but anyway, I wanted to sort of be a one-liner 
comic, have these non-sequitur jokes that didn't really have a theme or anything. It was just clever wordplay. I love that kind of comedy. Um, and then I, I was trying to figure out what is going to make my act relevant. What is going to sort of push me to that next level, maybe not in acclaim, but in having a well-crafted act. And I don't remember the exact source. I know I took a comedy class and I talked to a lot of people and I watched a lot of documentaries and it was just observing everybody. But at some point it hit me, not an original thought, but, but somewhere it finally crept in that I needed to be vulnerable. And what that meant to me when I was forming it is I had to say what I was afraid of in the most literal sense, in a way that explained what my fear was to everybody. Now, you don't have to go with fear either. Vulnerability is not, in comedy, is not necessarily uh, about being weak. It is not it's about being raw. It is about whatever the emotion is, let that emotion out. I got into comedy largely because I wanted to be cool, and I wanted to make friends, and I wanted to be a star. And I thought it was going to give me something that did not exist uh, in myself at the time. And so I was trying to be cool on stage by whipping out as many one-liners as I could, as fast as I could. And I got to this realization where I was just a broken-hearted human in real life. And I was like, what can I do? The only thing I can do that I can try that I haven't tried yet, which was not true because I tried so few things at this time. It's like, I'm going to talk about the things I'm afraid of on stage. And so I wrote a brand new set for a show where I had a little bit longer set than... than was was possible. I, I started telling a joke about how I am afraid to talk to women. I was afraid to talk to girls. I was afraid to go up with them to them and, and flirt with them. I was like not in a meanwhile, I was just it made me too nervous. I wasn't smooth. And I started saying this. I started writing jokes about how that kind of social interaction threw me off and made me uncomfortable to the point that I would uh, behave in socially stunted ways. Now, the part that absolutely surprised me at this point in my life and career progression was these jokes now started resonating with audiences so much harder. And the reason is because they were relatable. There is always going to be somebody in the, in the audience that understands what I was talking about. I'll give you an example. One of the jokes that I like to do before I was good at writing comedy um, is I said, my friend asked me if he could freeze spaghetti. And I could say, you can freeze uh, anything that is real, right? Um, and then I jump up in the air and I say, well, I can't freeze in the air. I guess you can freeze everything except a prepositional phrase. Not, not a, like it's not a great joke. I I still think it's kind of funny though. It's like a kid joke. I should have written jokes for uh, little kids, but it's not. You don't go to a comedy club, pay twenty five dollars and a two drink minimum, and dress up and get there early and pay for tickets and walk in and have the anxiety of going out in public and bring a date or your significant other or your friends and have a night out of the town. You you don't want to see someone 
who who looks like they you know just just graduated from high school telling you a stupid little joke like that it's not it's not sufficient maybe the opener or something and some people appreciate funny little things like that I'll tell one of my um let's see if I can remember that uh Santa Claus uh I was always told that Santa Claus uh comes what um no wait Santa Claus isn't real that's oh no wait what is my no it was a stupid I can't even remember it it's too stupid it was about Santa Claus and then uh uh so who? Oh, another name for sick Nick, Saint Nick is Santa Claus. Even though he's not real, that's a subordinate clause. See, stupid jokes. It, I was just, and, but this this is also how you start doing comedy. You start you start creating things that are funny with things because you're practicing uh, writing the joke out. You're starting just writing something that's formulaically funny on paper. Because when you start, you don't get as much stage time, so you can't sort of figure out, is this stuff real? But So I started talking about vulnerability. I started uh, talking about um, how I had had experiences and encounters with people where I misunderstood what they said, where I took them way too literally at stuff. And this is the kind of stuff that became really relatable. Uh, I started going into my experiences... um, with uh with the military telling jokes about my diploma even that stuff not quite not quite where i wanted to be one time i got to to open for a weekend at the the laughing skull in atlanta for one of my favorite uh, comedians that i got to work with a lot when i when i first started uh, tom simmons and i was driving back to his hotel one night and he gave me some it wasn't even great advice or i mean it's like it's not advice he he told me something that was really helpful Comment. I guess that is advice. That so, uh, he goes, "Hey, you got a lot of jokes about about the army. I think you should write some jokes about being in the army. I think you do a lot better with being with jokes about your experience in the army and not just the organization in general. And that really ties into what I was talking about about what makes an act um, good." versus great. And that was the conversation that I was having. If you remember back why I got into this whole topic, I was talking to this friend about, um, you know, he's a, he's a fine writer. Uh, and he had been told by another comic that just that he's like, you're fine, but you could get better and you need your stuff to have more emotional impact. Now, this is funny because he and I are both are people that I think one of the reasons we are friends is that every time we've talked, we have very, we feel like we're very emotionally neutral on stage. Um, And the fact that we then had this conversation that, so this is funny. I want to sort of, I think there was a point in the conversation where he goes, I'm not as emotional as people think I am, right? But this conversation started with him sort of admitting to me that he sort of was a little bit hurt by this whole 
conversation that he had had with a mentor and friend comic that was a reality check about his act. And so I instantly pointed out, that's great. You are in the same position that a lot of us who try to be artists are, where we have all this potential, we just, we can't see our own. Literally being emotional about being told you're not emotional enough in your act. And yes, that is one of the hardest things to get that to translate from your life over into your art. Um, and it's a very scary thing, but it is a very critical thing too. I'm not here to offer advice in it. I'm just here to, to test for the fact that even though I only have done it uh, to a degree that I have the potential to, it, it's true. It has the remarkable effect of exactly what you would hope it would. It makes your act resonate. I think one of the strongest reactions I've ever had to a comedy show, I told him instantly to watch uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge's one-woman show, Fleabag, which is straight-up funnier than plenty of the stand-up comedy sets that I have seen from hilarious comics, and yet it is also like a devastating... Uh, gut punch, um, emotional stage show, and it lingers. It is one where when the lights go off and the audience applauds, the feelings that this show makes you feel will resonate in you long after the show had, I mean, maybe not for everybody, but think about those kinds of things. Christopher Titus is one of those comics for me. We've always described him as he, he's, he feels like a preacher. He feels like a comedy preacher delivering a comedy sermon. And when you get done watching a Christopher Titus show, uh, it, is not just a journey of time, but it is a journey of feelings because he is one of uh, the rawest performers I know. I was super fortunate enough to... I didn't even get to open for him, but I got to drive him. <laughs> I'm crazy. Because I was uh, an intern... At the comedy club, I was one of the PAs. I was one of the volunteers that would absolutely do anything for the club uh, to try to earn my time. And I was driving him to his hotel room from the radio spot he was doing, and I was asking him about his best experience ever in stand-up comedy, and he was talking about how. Um, and I think I think this has happened in a lot of artistic fields, but he was talking about how uh, you know an audience member came up to him and said that he had saved his life one time because he was just about to call it, and he had sat down on his sofa, turned on the TV, and Christopher Titus's special was on there, and he was talking about some of the rawest experiences from his growing up, and this person just said, "Man, if this guy can talk about the most hurtful things that have ever happened to him in his life and make people laugh about it." Um, that gave him the strength as a person to keep trying. And I think that is the impact that these arts things can have. But that is not the intended impact of this 
podcast. However, this podcast may be the product of the intended impact of the film and book in which it was based on. And is that a good thing or a bad thing in the world? We may never know. Um, but it is. Look look at the second, this, this, uh, the existence of this podcast is the tertiary effect of the Silver Linings Playbook being written as a book. And then there was the adapted film by that. And then there's the podcast that is based on both of those, which is now on its 100th episode. And that's right. We are 24 weeks into the 100 parts of this podcast that we are doing to celebrate our 100th. The exciting part about this is as soon as we're done with the 100th episode, we're actually going to go, we'll probably be on uh, the 200th week of doing this. So it will be um, essentially the 200th entry in, but it will technically only be the 101th episode. Well, anyway, thank you for listening to this 24th part of our special 100th part or 100th episode here uh tune in this week you already tuned in this week and tune in next week and every week as long as we decide to keep doing this for all the latest on the silver linings playbook the movie and the silver linings playbook the book until next time we will see you down the road and excelsior he's kind of crazy she's a little insane keeping energy really messes with his brain one is the forest the other's husband is dead that's why it's so messed up in the head. It's a silver linings play cast.